Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Jennifer Chesak. So nice to meet you. You've written an incredibly cool book. I am very, very excited to introduce you to the audience. And to that point, let's just get that done straight up top here, darling. For the folks out there that are not too familiar with you and your work, do you mind just introducing yourself for the audience? Absolutely. So yes, as you said, I'm Jennifer Chesick. I'm a medical journalist and a fact checker. And I just authored and published the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, which I am super excited about. It's been, uh, you know, it just launched on June 6. And it's kind of been a wild ride since then in terms of promotion and getting the book out there. I just returned from Psychedelic Science, which is this huge conference on psychedelics put on by the by MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I showed up for my book signing and uh, it was crazy. The books that are my book had already sold out. So uh, it was it was wild to have that happen. Simon Schuster, get it together. You know, what's up with that? You don't send enough books ahead of the author's arrival. Of course, your book, The Psilocybin Handbook for Women, Very interesting and obviously leads me to my first question. Why the no boys allowed sign on the very cover there? What's up with that? I know it's not, (laughs) but what's up with that? Right. Yeah. So I promise I'm not excluding anyone, but I did want to write a book specifically for women. And that's because sometimes women get left behind by the mainstream medical community. So um, in doing some of my initial research, I learned that more women are taking some psychedelics than men are. And uh, it's just with some psychedelics. And then I dug a little deeper. And what I learned is that more women are actually using psychedelics to self-treat. So for conditions like PTSD, um, anxiety, depression, other sorts of trauma. And then of course, different conditions that affect women, um, 
chronic pain, endometriosis, things like that. So these are what, what women are turning to psychedelics for, whereas oftentimes men, not all of them, are turning to psychedelics for more of a recreational experience. Now, I do believe that's changing for men as well. But what I wanted to do was put out some really good information about the intersection of psilocybin and women's health. So things like uh, where where in our cycles uh, should we be using psilocybin or where or when, uh, context for pregnancy, breastfeeding, uh, parenting in general, menopause, all of that stuff. So I really wanted to focus on women. And I think I just mentioned a little bit ago that the mainstream medical community often leaves women behind. And I always want to back up my information with facts. And so what I want to share with you is that Women, when oftentimes when we go to the doctor, we get gaslit for the conditions that we have, or they take doctors often take women's pain less seriously. And there's tons of research out there on that. And I include that research in my book. And just to give you a little example, actually, this is a big example, and I I think it might blow your mind. So uh, women were excluded, largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until the 1990s, which is when I was a teenager. So that's really crazy to me. And uh, uh, to put that into context, like how has that affected women? If we look at a condition like sexual dysfunction, so for men, men had a pill for sexual dysfunction approved by the FDA in 1998. And we all know that medication. It's called Viagra. That was the first one. Women didn't, they didn't even have a complete picture of the clitoris until 2005 when um, a urologist, a female urologist dug a little deeper and did MRI, you know, imaging to get this full picture of the clitoris. So 1998, male have a, men have a drug for male sexual dysfunction. 2005, we finally find the clitoris, right? And then, and then if you look at, uh, it wasn't until 2015 that women got a drug for female sexual dysfunction. That blows my mind. Uh, I, mean, I guess I'm really not that surprised, but it's it's enraging to me when you think about the statistics of female sexual dysfunction. So 40% of women of reproductive age have female sexual dysfunction. That goes up to about 85% uh, for people who've gone through menopause. So yeah, crazy, right? Do you think that's rel- relatively modern or do you feel that this is something that's been going on unchecked the whole time? Just in terms of the sexual dysfunction or that that how women get left behind Um, the sexual dysfunction part of it. Yeah, I think that's been going on for a long time. In fact, in fact, I actually think uh, female sexual sexual dysfunction is starting to improve because we've gotten some better information about the full scale of the clitoris, and we do have this new medication. We're op- more openly talking about these things. We still have a long way to go, but you know, a lot of doctors aren't really trained in how to manage um, female sexual dysfunction. And so women just continue to get left behind. I do think it's starting to change though. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, samesies. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're fair over here. We want y'all to all get the same treatment. And it's silly for us to feel that, you know, to come to this sort of information that, that you have found and said, hey, this is what's been going on, but we're here to change it. But again, we're lighting up a lot of things that we didn't think were going on here. And that's with this grand illumination process that seems to be occurring across all boundaries. So why wouldn't this be one of them? What Absolutely. about cycles? I'm very interested because you you mentioned something with cycles. Now, is this field research on your part or is there data that backs this up with the way that psychedelics interact? 
So we're starting to get some information from the research. So there are um, two female scientists at Johns Hopkins University. Um, it's Natalie, Dr. Natalie Gukasian and Dr. Sasha K. Narai. And I always want to give credit where credit, credit is due. Nope. But these two scientists have done some research. They've dug into some case studies. So all we have right now are case studies and anecdotal reports. But what we're finding is that psychedelics may, uh, and, and specifically psilocybin, although it could be the case with other psychedelics as well, are that um, they tend to re-regulate the menstrual cycle if someone has an irregular menstrual cycle and then they take psychedelics. And it can also cause the menstrual, it can cause the period to come a little early. That's what we're hearing from these case studies studies that these scientists have done, but also just anecdotally online, we're also hearing that as well. And so in terms of why would this happen? How is this possible? Um, so women have what are what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. I mean, we all have that, but uh, you know, men and women. But if you're talking about the female body, it's that connection to the ovaries with the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. So the HPG axis is what the menstrual cycle occurs along. And what what I mean by that is almost like a feedback loop. When one hormone like estrogen does something, then it tells another hormone to do something and so forth, the cycle. And then if we think about our stress response, we all have what's called the HPA axis, and that stands for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so again, we all have that and it controls our stress response. And so when we use psilocybin, that activation or the, the binding to the, um, the serotonin receptors and the activation of that, that happens along that HPA axis. And just by their names, you can tell that these axes overlap. So the HPA axis overlaps with the HPG axis. And we already know things that like stress can impact the menstrual cycle, the menstrual cycle can impact our stress response. And so we're seeing what doctors theorize is that there, there's this overlap and these two things can affect each other. And so perhaps a psilocybin journey can affect the menstrual cycle or where you are in your menstrual cycle might affect the the journey that you have. And so there's some indication that women actually have tend to have more um they, more bad trips. I shouldn't say that that's a guarantee or anything because I ha I've had a great trip, you know, when I used psilocybin, but it can happen more, women report having more bad experiences. Now that, that's not to say that you will. But the other thing that we know is that estrogen affects that, re the binding of the receptors of the serotonin receptors. So there's possibility that, you know, there's some interaction along the way. So I did talk to, someone who does womb care she's she's um in a, a person doing indigenous wisdom practices and i wanted to get her experience and information because i feel like it's really important to be bridging science with indigenous wisdom and she said that she recommends if you're doing a deeper journey to do that during your ovulation time rather than as you're closer to your period or right on your period. And the reason for that was simply because a lot of times we fast leading up to a psychedelic journey because uh, that can help produce a good experience. You know, again, not a guarantee, but a lot of people do that as part of their set and setting practices. And so when you're closer to your cycle, you're going to have more difficulty doing that because the body needs a lot of energy to manage that cycle that as you get closer to your period and um during psilocy i mean during uh, ovulation you tend to have a more like
like energetic experience. And so, you know, it might be more, um, you're more able to fast during that time. And then the other thing that she said that I loved was she talked about microdosing. So a lot of women are trying our microdosing psilocybin to, um, you know, see how that affects their cycles, especially if they've got something like premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is PMDD um, for the, for short, or things like um, endometriosis and et cetera, et cetera. And so um, she recommended that if you're trying to microdose to whatever protocol you're using to do that for three months, that you go through three cycles to see where you're at with that before you give it up. If like, if for example, you start doing it, you're not sure it's working, give it three months, that those three cycles to really see how it affects you. And I thought that was really smart. It's very smart. And it's, it's good to also, you know, have you control. Uh, let's see how it plays out. And I find it very interesting with everything you said, by the way, but also very interesting that you said that women tend to have more bad trips. But earlier in our discussion, you were mentioning that men tend to go into these trips rec more recreationally. And do you feel that that may have something to do with it? I'm not sure exactly, but, you know, I, I recommend that if people are going to do a deeper journey and want to have a therapeutic experience that, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking psilocybin at a festival if that's what you want to do, but you may have a more um, connected experience and, you know, kind of introspection if you're doing this sort of in a more controlled environment. And certainly when you're at a festival or whatever, you could have a bad experience just because it's there's so much stimuli around you. That, that's not to say that you automatically will. Um, now, why are women having more potentially more bad trips? There's just been a survey about that in some research. And it, I think it's probably more related to the hormones. Um, you know, again, that uh, affecting the uh, serotonin receptor binding sites. I think that could have something to do with it. So I'm hoping that we get more research about when in our cycle to take it, especially if that's the case. So some researchers theorize that um, we have that women have what's called an entourage effect. You know, we're all probably more familiar with the entourage effect in terms of thinking about cannabis, you know, that THC and CBD and other cannabinoids work really well together and can produce better results than just taking an isolated uh, cannabinoid. And so this might be the case that estrogen causes a better trip or causes a worse trip. We just don't know yet. And so you're, where you are in your cycle and what level of each hormone is at may have an impact on that. So I'm guessing that's where the research is going. It's interesting, too, because even Terrence McKenna comments as a man on the psychedelic nature of birth and how that's a chemical, you know, obviously a release of all sorts of energies and things, but can it be expressed and uh, pronounced scientifically? But it's just really interesting when you look at things like that and how it does then specifically seem to be a female experience in that way. And yes, maybe the chemical components such as estrogen play that role. Now, it's interesting with this as well as every damn time, except for maybe two or three, and I've been a psychonaut for a long time, well over 20 years, every time except two or three, I have always done them with the extent recreational purpose in mind. I never did them. I, I was very uh, unappeal. It was unattractive for me to do them in public. So that wasn't something that I did, but I always got super profound things out of them. And I've only really had one bad trip that I could say. And it was my first time on LSD, my first time to experience psychedelics at all. And, and from there though, it's always been recreational, but it's always been a marry of recreational fun and play mixed in with, I happen to get this amazing, profound experience in it, but I feel that making sure that play was an element to it, you know, and I've um, then sure. participated in very intentional settings with psychedelics to where it was like, 
okay, we set up an Aeracana, like our uh, ayahuasca experience, for instance, and we set up an Aeracana and that has its place and it's fascinating and amazing. It didn't feel as profound, I'll be honest with you. And so what's interesting with this, because I felt more restricted, my soul didn't feel as um, that it could play as much because in that experience, it's a very solace one. And I understand that that's part of the thing and my inner child is more geared towards psychedelics for the fun element of it. Not to be, not that the point of the, profoundness of the experiences were ever lost on me, but it was always something that I went in recreationally. So there's just an interesting statistic you brought up there about men preferably statistically choosing to do it more recreationally. But then therefore, like I said, uh, I always knew the profound shit was in there. It, even if I said yeah. to just have fun. Right. And I, you know, I think some people aren't aware of that yeah. the profound shit, as you yeah. said, <laughs> which is so true. There's a lot of profound shit in there. And so, uh, yeah, some people aren't aware that the mushroom is going to just start teaching you things that you did, that you needed to know that you didn't need, that you didn't know you needed to know and yeah. stuff like yeah. that. And, no, no, no. are fun. Yeah. And I had a similar thing where, um, you know, I, so I did a journey and the first night I was more like on, you know, that not, it wasn't a clinical setting, but it felt like, you know, how you would do psychedelic assisted therapy where you're laying on a mat and you have the eye mask on and, and stuff like that. It was still very profound, but the next day I did a deeper trip and I was like more out in the mountains and the woods. And I felt that to be the better experience. You know, I think a lot of people go ahead. No, that I'm uh, yes ending you. I'm saying that's what I'm yeah. talking about. The outside, like my my advice always on this: go to nature. You know, go outside. Yeah, that's because that's my that's where I want to go. And it's almost like them being from nature. Of course, they I feel feel that as well. If we anthropomorphize psilocybin as an entity, which is what I want to ask you about next. What are your thoughts on that? Psilocybin, an entity that actually coerces or actually works in conjunction with the consciousnesses that will are willing to take it in and accept it. And also in the same way to where there are so many interesting things on this point to where how they grow to where there are long pathways to be discovered by humans. Also how they'll latch on the spores can go anywhere and be on a backpacker, just carrying them by or whatever. They're, you know, attractive for us. They're, Ooh, what's that? There's a lot of appeal as far as their nature goes, which is interesting as far as we go. Right. And then the way that they work is something we survive on. So it would have been a, something that we would have stumbled upon perhaps in the um, food of the gods analogy. Again, uh, McKenna's book about the, the monkeys and with all of yeah. them, it seems that it seems so attractive that it could be maybe an alien species from here here to help those that choose to imbibe it because those really were like oh save the you know forest save like everywhere the mushroom wants to be we're a big fan of making sure is okay and it may be sort of a co-opted you know coherence but in a way that we invite in what do you what do you think of that thought you know i do i do kind of like to think of the mushroom as an entity as this this thing that gets to teach you the the things that you really need to know that you are struggling with because we all have a different experience when we have a, a trip and it seems like we you know there's the old saying uh you are the medicine yes. and you know i believe that i think we all have these tools within us it's but it's when we act when we access the mushroom that teaches us those tools or those things that we're struggling with it helps us with that so it does feel like there's this element of of the mushroom being an entity and especially when you start to think about the how um 
mushrooms in general or fungus fungi fungi in general yeah. in the you know in the ecosystem with the mycelium network and the mycorrhizal the larger mycorrhizal network and how if one tree is suffering the, the the root system will send nutrients from the other part of the forest and things like that and it you know it really does seem very magical or mystical that that can be a thing like how is that a thing right <laughs> And so, yeah, I do like to think of it as this being or entity, as you as you said. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. it, it is. It's something yeah. that you feel like you're working with, you know, like an ally, mm -hmm. um, like Dante, like he had Virgil, you know, taking him down through the levels of hell. You have an ally here, you know, that can help work with you in blind spots that you don't understand. And I love that it's like Michael Pollan's um, analogy of the snow. You know, I'm sure you've heard of this, taking psilocybin is basically like putting new snow on a hill after you've been sledding it for a long time and the tracks come so deep, um, you know, psilocybin is just fresh snow on the hill. And it's all of these things that rewrite your consciousness in a way that just gives you sort of a fresh start. It gives you a new perspective. It allows you to get out of the ruts that you've just been forming neurologically and to just think differently. And that's one of the most beautiful things about this experience. What yeah. about... Oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say one thing about that just before we move on. Um, th so there's this model that scientists have come up with to explain that phenomenon of like getting new input and i really love it because they have they've also created this really great analogy and uh so it's called the rebus model and that stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics and um what essentially they're saying with this model is that when we're in normal states of consciousness our brains are very rigid you know if you think about a child as you're as you're young, your mind is very flexible. It's open to receiving new input about the world, about oneself, your identity, your sense of self, all of that. Um, but as we get into adulthood, then our belief systems become more rigid. And that's, again, your belief systems about yourself or the world around you. Those become much more rigid. And so in normal states of consciousness, you can think of your mind is almost like this frozen pond, like an iced over pond. So if you're to try to take new input about the world or about yourself, and you try to drop like a pebble or a rock on that pond, it just hits the surface, right? It doesn't do anything. Maybe it causes a little crack, but that's it. Now, when you're on psychedelics, the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics model, that pond is like thawed now. And so now take that new input and try to drop it on and, and it goes in, it sinks into the lake and causes a little ripple effect. And I just love that analogy for understanding just in very simple terms, the difference between that normal states of consciousness and the, the psychedelic state of consciousness and being able to gain new insight. So if you had a bad belief about yourself, we can potentially change that belief by, or the mushroom can is what I should say, can potentially change, help you change that belief. Yeah, you and the mushroom can absolutely help change that belief. I'd love that metaphor. That is one I will absolutely yeah. exciting and I'm enthusiastic with you, uh, along with you about that. Uh, I'm very curious about your thoughts on what seems to be uh, this psychedelic renaissance. It seems like the 60s had their thing and then people got jobs and said, oh, you crazy hippies, get out of here. And now the crazy hippies have returned in a sense. And now uh, they seem to be different. It seems to be very different, but it seems like it's got some flavor of a renaissance. Is that what you would call this? Yeah, I mean, everyone is using that term, the psychedelic renaissance. And, you know, it's exciting. We're getting all of this 
new research. Obviously, research started way before this. It started in the you know 60s, and, and then we had the war on drugs, and that halted all of this beautiful research that we were seeing. Now we're getting we're getting somewhere again, getting new research, and the research is exciting because I do think research is what is going to help change the misinformation out there about psychedelics. It's also going to potentially help. Um, lead to widespread decrim- more widespread decriminalization and even potentially um, legalization or FDA approval for certain you know psychedelic assisted therapies, which I think are really important in certain contexts. But um, but I I also don't want us to lose, and I think this is um, a common concept is that I don't want us to lose this idea of the indigenous wisdom that we've that has come so way before all of this and is so integral to how we how we use and practice with psilocybin because it's so important when we think about science we think of it as doing something over and over again to reproduce the same results that's how we get you know clinical trials and drugs approved and whatnot and whatnot but if you think about it, indigenous people have been using psilocybin and other psychedelics for, you know, generations and generations going back farther than I even know. And they have been doing that exact same thing. They have been doing this over and over again to reproduce results. And they also bring a lot of, you know, good cultural cultural practices in terms of the prep, the set and setting that you do before a psilocybin journey. And so that is just so important to, to continue to bring in. And during my research, I ended up talking to um, a, a licensed clinical social worker, and she taught me about this concept called the um, the two-eyed seeing concept. And I just want to pull up my notes so I don't butcher this. But um, essentially, the two-eyed seeing concept is that we we want to bridge that indigenous wisdom with the new you know, research that's coming all out in what's called this two-eyed seeing concept. I mean, and this was introduced, the two-eyed seeing concept was first introduced by a Mi'kmaq elder named Albert Marshall of the Eskasoni First Nation. And he brought up this idea of merging the indigenous wisdom with new new science, essentially. And that's what we need going forward. And again, this other social worker, um, her name is Natalie Villanova. She brought this to my attention. And I just thought that's really important that we do continue to have that two-eyed seeing concept going forward. And I'm trying to do that in other ways in my life, not just in terms of thinking with, with psilocybin, you know, it could just be yoga or whatever it is, just, you know, thinking about indigenous practices more so in my life. Did you, Nailed it with this. This is what I've been talking about for years on the show, uh, the merging of science and spirituality, of this idea of that spiritual practices and technology are different. And I feel that the first bridge to this, of course, not ignoring indigenous tribes wisdom along the way. Uh, Peter Gorman, for example, is the dude that brought ayahuasca from the from Peru uh, and got everybody up in the in North America thinking about it. But that was back in the 80s. And even then, there was still a long gap between we really heard much about it. It seems very last five years, maybe, especially last couple of ayahuasca specifically. So when you look at stuff like that, it seems that the timelines on which things are released and then brought into the place, we're talking about now simulation theory being brought up alongside of unity consciousness ideas, which that's again, where science and spirituality are meeting. And then again, these indigenous practices of healing medicines along with psychological treatments that we're finding now with, again, like you said, PTSD, even physiological effects, your cycles, ladies, can be, you know, influenced and affected. And 
honed in by these. And it's fascinating what you said. I wanted to come back to the war on drugs thing. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, Bill Hicks? He's a comedian from the 90s. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. His whole thing about war on drugs, he was laughing about it. He said it implies that there's a there's a he said Reagan came on and said, oh, we're losing the war on drugs. He said, what's hilarious about that is that implies that there's a war going on between people on drugs and people aren't. And the people that are on drugs are winning it, which is hilarious. So they're stupor, right? They can do this. Now, to what you said about the two-eyed seeing concept, I love this. This makes so much sense because, again, we're we're brought back to these understandings of inviting spirituality and these indigenous practices, which are very similar in my mind, as well as these new technological advancements with the understandings of the biochemical structures of all the physiological effects that are affecting us whenever we are introduced into these cultures. But even then, the setting is very important. In a clinical setting, um, had Dr. Rick Strassman on, and we were talking about this with his DMT research as far as this clinicalness of it, the environment. You know, it's super set and setting, right? I wouldn't want that. I would I would go participate in it if he was in the woods, but not the other way around. And again, just because of this strong call to that side of the experience, there is mm-hmm. a clinical way that you can go about this, right? Even with Hoffman, I mean, as uh, he said, he discovered it, but still synthetic, right? So this idea though, can also be mirrored in governmental systems. Like you said, it's, it's uh, as above, so below. You said it, it perfectly, it translates into all things. You could find this with a uh, culture system. So the cultures that give us the traditions based on this are what were considered ring or circle cultures. They didn't feel separate from God, from nature, from everything. And then the more Western or technological advanced society, whatever, uh, sort of views this as a pyramid structure because of where they were located. They were in more extreme climates that they needed a top tier down structure to be able to survive as a culture, right? So those ideals and now seeing, like you said, that they're being married in a beautiful way in the symphony to where we can see that we're not so different, you and I, you know, kind of a thing. Right. And then, but absolutely the explanations for all folks, uh, pond frozen over or not again, love it, that are able to take the information in a way that thaws the water for them to be able to receive it. If they need it through science, you've got it. If you need it through the other practices and spirituality, you've got that too. It's just cool to see the diversity and examples. Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about a little bit ago in in terms of set and setting, uh, one of the things that I found was during my the second day that I was doing the journey of that time that I was doing it, where I started with the inside more kind of clinical you know, experience and then going outside the next day there, that day that I was outside, you know, I started dosing early in the morning. I would say nine 30 wasn't that early, but early for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. A little wake and bake. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, you know, I was, I was enjoying the nature, finding such beauty in it, feeling very connected. All of a sudden this thunderstorm rolled in and I was on the top of a mountain. So I, you know, we had to go inside because of the dangers of the light and everything like that. And so the minute that I had to go inside, I started to have a very wonky experience. It was still really good in that I something very profound happened for me. But I did go through this part where, you know, I was like sitting on the couch and the couch is like breathing. And I'm like, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> I mean, I knew it could. Unexpected. Yeah. Yeah, it's always unexpected when an ent- like a, a you know piece of furniture is is alive suddenly. But um, but I went through this almost like dark section of my trip is how I like to describe it. Again, it ended up being extremely profound, but it was so interesting how once the storm rolled in and I had to move inside, 
I had this like really intense idea of like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. Unsubscribe, you know, but you can't unsubscribe during a psilocybin session. And then as soon as the storm was gone and my guide who I was with was like, hey, you can go back outside. I was like, just this immense peace came over me. And I had never felt such so much like euphoria and peace at once because I could go back outside, you know, it was wild. You feel like a kid, like you're like, Oh, recess, you know, I want to go back outside. But yeah. I, do you, that's such an interesting story too, about being in nature, a storm rolling through needing to uh, it, the storm affecting the trip that you were on and then having a profound experience because of it. Paul Stamets has this exact story about when he took mushrooms. You remember this when he was out in the woods walking and he climbed like the tallest tree he could see. And he's watching clouds come in as he's tripping balls <clears throat> oh, no, I don't know this story, but that's amazing. Beautiful. And he used to have this really intense stutter. And he said that he was up there and all of a sudden the lightning's coming through. The tree is blowing like crazy. And it's a lightning storm. I mean, lightning's going off all around him. The worst place to be is in the top of a tree. Right. Hanging on for dear life, just talking about his stuttering. And he just kept repeating the same thing over and over. I will not stutter, whatever, through the entire storm. Storm blew through, climbed down, hasn't stuttered. Wow, that is amazing. I, you know, and I love storm roll through profound experience because it shifted your experience. And then now coming out of the storm, you had an amazing profound awakening. Yeah, my my experience, which was so felt so profound to me. And again, everyone's going through something different. But um, in my life, I have par aging parents. And you know, my mom's 80. My dad is a few years younger. Uh, they've had health problems. I know that, you know, they're, they're no they'll they'll eventually pass away they will no longer be with me on this earthly realm that we have you know and that gives me a lot of anxiety right now as someone in middle age and um so it's been something that has been really weighing on my mind and i felt like the mushroom really forced me to face that and it wasn't like i was you know visualizing their deaths or anything it was just suddenly I had this information in my head that I can get through that, even though it's going to be immensely hard. I'm going to have a lot of grief. I will, I do have the tools and the support system around me to get through that. And the mushroom taught me that it was something I didn't know before. And since then I've had l way less anxiety about this, this concept of losing my parents. I'm still, obviously it still you know bothers me, but it's not something that I, I'm stressing about constantly, I can say, okay, I have to accept whatever happens in the future and I will get through it. And that's such an amazing feeling. It was such a gift for, from my journey. God, that's beautiful. Do you feel, do you feel that it gave you that as an opportunity to say you could trust it? Cause it's usually in my experience, it's not about the thing. It's about what the thing presents you. You know what I mean? So do you feel that it was a micro example of something larger? Or do you feel it was so specific that it needed to be that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it was very specific. It was certainly something that I wanted to explore, but I wasn't setting out to do that necessarily in my mindset. Um, but it, the fact that it showed me something that I needed to see so much, which I really, really did. It's this thing that has been affecting me immensely, affecting my stress levels, anxiety levels, probably my health in different aspects, just because I'm so you know, high strung about it, but I'm no longer that way. And so it was such a, again, such this gift to have been given. And I, I just, I, it was such a, it was so magical that it, I did, I do now place even more trust in the mushroom, if that makes sense. It does. And it's a, and it's also a trust in yourself to be able to say that you have the power, you have the guidance and you have the wisdom within you, even mushrooms aside, mushrooms just showed you that it was within you, you know, the old eighties movies thing. it was within you the whole time, right? Because it always is. Yes. 
What do mm-hmm. so what what you're talking about here is basically like what, the effect that a near death experience has on people, and we've talked a lot about the phenomena, whatever that means. Um, psychedelic experiences, we feel you can access in that as well. Do you do you feel that there's similarities in the profoundness of the two ideals? Tell me what you're what you're asking again in terms of the two ideals. Yeah, the near death experience. Have you heard any oh. reports about how profound? Because people have a near death experience similar to a psychedelic experience, not in the way you feel you're going to die, but just in the information from the trip. Let's say both a trip and their a psychedelic experience in their own right. Yeah, I, I I do see a lot of overlap there. You know, I haven't researched near death experiences that much or anything like that as as I have with psilocybin, but there is a mystical aspect to both of them. You know, year of of mystical experiences in psilocybin, and we also hear of people having mystical experiences if they do have a near death experience or something akin to that. That you know, they they suddenly are able to have new information in their mind about how they want to live their lives. And I think there's so much overlap there in terms of that psilocybin mystical experience. And you know, the mystical part it can be anything that you experience that is so profound it's almost hard to put into words, you know. And I'll tell you, I I wrote my first chapter in the book about my own journey. And putting these things to words is really difficult. <laughs> Yeah, we struggle with that a lot. It's that old analogy of the amazing horse and it's beautiful. And then it's like duct tape yeah. banister. You're like, how I explain it, how it actually felt, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And so when I'm talking to people who have not had a psilocybin experience, trying to explain it is almost like, are they going to think I'm nuts? You know, <laughs> not but- here. You know, the, not, I know not you. Know, you. <laughs> we can both trip out on how we can't articulate the colors. How close have you come to being able to describe the color palette over there? <laughs> it's really complicated for sure. I do remember sitting there at, as I first started to dose um, the day that I was outside and looking at like the, the trees and the moss. And I was like, it's such a, in my head, I was like, it's such a green, green. Yeah. <laughs> I yes. was sort of laughing at myself. Yeah. Because at first I was mostly experiencing those like vivid, the vivid color, the vivid texture of the mountains and things like that. And I kind of laughed at myself. I thought, oh, how cliche, girl takes mushrooms and thinks trees are pretty. But then it obviously became so much more profound. (laughs) Well, it's perfect. I think it, I think it will be reduced that to those in which it's not a vibrational match. And that's okay. I feel that it needs to be because those ponds are very frozen over, but that plays an incredibly important role. It does. Come back to your uh, parents just a little bit. Uh, have your folks uh, been psychonauts or psychedelically interested in any way? No, they haven't. Um, you know, they raised me in the 80s during the war on drugs. So, you know, drugs were super bad in our household and things like that. And it's taken a long time for me to, um, you know, move away from this idea of drugs are bad. I, you know, as a teenager, I didn't um, experiment with anything. It wasn't until I got into my 20s and I'm in my 40s now that I experimented with cannabis and things like that. And, um, you know, but I always hung out. The thing is, I always hung out with people who were um, very into various substances, you know, run ran the gamut from, you know, LSD to cannabis to, you know, uh, you know, whatever it was. And uh, I always appreciated those people so much. So it was there was this weird idea, oh, drugs are bad, growing up in the 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 war on drugs or the dare era, but also knowing these people who were experimenting and were just such lovely people. And I still have some of those people in my life and they're just lifelong friends. And so I always had this idea that the that I, that concept of the war on drugs and the dare era was wrong and they were completely wrong, you know? 
so grateful for it. It's such a gift. It feels the same gift that we experienced three years ago. It feels the same gift that NASA is in my mind. All of these things are beautiful gifts that show you just what's not going on. You know, again, yeah. I'm not going to go controversial here, but it just totally me that is not the correct answer. And it was really one of the first indicators for damn sure. So grateful you brought it up. I was curious on your uh, on your folks, because it sounds like it'd be cool for you and your mom to sit around. I just I don't know why I have this image of you guys sitting around talking about your book signing, sipping on mushroom tea together, just sort of <laughs> talking about everything. And I didn't, you know, and that's why I was curious to see if they were interested at all. It makes sense. Mine aren't either. And I, I get it. You know, you grow where you're planted and we're meant to plant places to where that's not a thing. Same though with you. Uh, didn't touch anything. Didn't even know what anything was until I was 18, until I moved to Houston. I uh, just wasn't interested, didn't know it was a thing. But like you as well, once I was introduced to these folks, they weren't the bad crowd. I met the bad crowd they happened to do some of those things as well, but it had nothing to do with the substances they were choosing. Yes. Someone, right. Yeah. You can't blame it on that. Right. I don't equate like bad person is because you use a substance. That is not the case. In fact, again, some of the most amazing people in my life do use substances and I'm a big advocate for reducing stigma and openly talking about the substances that we're using to help ourselves. Love it. Of course. That's why you're here. Makes makes yeah. all the more sense in the world. Okay. I want to ask you about parenting and mushrooms. So this we've got an amazing parenting group, which we're going to, if you don't mind, stick around for a couple of minutes when we get done here, I'll tell yeah. you about it. Uh, we've okay. got an incredible thing with Dr. Edith Mbutu Chan, this incredible Chinese medicine healer. And she, her son is one of the ones that came to her and her husband before he was conceived and said, hey, you need to have me. Uh, and then now her son is one of the people that can read blindfold, like with a blinder on, blindfold on. So fascinating thing. And as far as exiting uh, some of the systems in education and giving alternative um, options to parents, this sounds like right up our alley. So what's an alternative perception to mushrooms and parenting? Yeah, I think that people um, don't realize how much our adverse childhood experiences are affecting us and how we pass those down generation to generation. So an adverse adverse childhood experience or like the acronym ACE or ACEs is what people talk about or what researchers talk about. So it, those ACEs are essentially like if you um, if you had an, a parent who was incarcerated, if you um, were physically or sexually or emotionally abused as a child, um, it could be something like being incredibly ill as a child. I was incredibly ill as a child with severe asthma. I was hospitalized all the time. So that's one of my ACEs. But a lot of us have ACEs. I think it's something like 80% of people have at least some ACEs. And um, it turns out that if, if as a parent, you've had one, if you've had four or more ACEs in your life, you're more like your children are like more likely to have four or more ACEs. And of course, we just then perpetuate this cycle of trauma. Not 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 all ACEs can be avoided. That's just a fact of life. But I think what what um, psilocybin and other psychedelics can help us do as parents, and I'm not a parent, I should say that, um, just study it, just study it a lot. But, um, it, you know, I think what, what we can do is do our best to heal our own traumas. And then that helps us to not pass the this cycle of trauma down and perpetuate it on down through generations. So I think psilocybin can really help in parenting that way. But what I'm also hearing, so there's a great group out there, it's called Moms on Mushrooms, M-O-M -M for short. 
And it um, it's run by this fabulous woman. Her name is Tracy T. And she's doing this hard work of connecting moms together who are really interested in psilocybin or are already using psilocybin so that we can all talk and share and not have all of this stigma. And what I've learned through talking to different parents and different social workers and things like that is that parents really enjoy using psilocybin, whether they do it separately or, you know, in the home or whatever, um, to then regain that sense of mind flexibility that we were talking about with the frozen pond, because some of that is lasting after you have a journey. So you could be completely not using psilocybin and be around your children and still have a little bit more flexibility in your mind after you've done an experience. And so what you're, what people, what parents are telling me and, and, you know, what other experts are telling me is that they're using psilocybin to regain that sense of wonderment and imagination that our kid, that kids already have. And so it can do things like help you play with your kids. You know, sometimes that can get really annoying from, from, you know, my days of babysitting, like getting down on the floor and like playing the Legos. And it's not something that you're super interested in. Maybe you're stressed out about something else and you can't really get into that play space. Well, psilocybin might might be helping people do that a little bit more, really be present with their kids instead of like looking at your phone, you know, which I'm not judging anyone. We're all busy and, cra- and crazy busy at that. And so, um, but I think there's a lot of context there for psilocybin to help us really connect with our kids and be present. How do you uh, think you introduce this topic to your children? I know you're not a parent, but I'm just curious about one would introduce this topic just to young. Let's say that you're asked uh, by a school or by an organization to come speak for young people um, as far as this topic goes. How do you think it can be approached? Yeah, well, I think it's just important to be open and honest about it. So I would love for for more parents to be open and honest with their children about substances. What that does, it teaches children that they, if they are interested in experimenting with a substance, they can come to their parents and not necessarily be like, hey, mom, give me some mushrooms, but more so that they can ask questions and get honest answers. You know, if I had had that as a child, getting really honest answers about cannabis, I think it would have been life changing for me. Instead of like people going off and doing, you know, whatever substances that they're considering, whatever, you know, teenagers considering doing substances, they're, they're doing it in secret. And, uh, you know, and I understand that, but at the same time, what if we just had open and honest conversations with kids about substances, there would be less secrecy and more safety surrounding substances, you know, um, for example, you know, obviously cannabis and psilocybin are some of the least toxic substances out there. Certainly I would rather have if I had children, I would rather have my teenager using cannabis than heroin, right? You know? That'd probably be a good, good little swapsies, you know? Just start yeah. with the cannabis, kiddo. Uh, do you feel that uh, cannabis is a gateway drug, as they say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've always heard that, right? Well, I don't think it's a gateway drug in the way that, like, the war on drugs described it. Like, oh, if someone tries cannabis, they're going to do all sorts of drugs. You know, they're going to be grabbing the Drano from underneath the sink and injecting that. Please don't do that, anyone. But <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I don't think that that is the way that cannabis is a gateway drug. But I think what what's happened recently is that we now have a lot more information about cannabis. Plus, when you go to a dispensary, you know what you're getting. You know, I can go to a dispensary. I can buy my gummies that I like for sleep. I can take the exact amount I need. I can, you know, go to sleep rather than smoking cannabis, which would be bad for my asthma and, you know, getting way too high that I, you know, in terms of like not 
really wanting to be in that that headspace. And so we're moving in this direction. We have a ton more information about cannabis. And so in in that way, I do think it can be a gateway drug to experimenting with other substances in a healthy way. So if somebody is learned has learned about cannabis and is now starting to learn about psychedelics, there's more information coming out now and we can gain like safety information and just best practices for using how to, even though we can't control our trips, how do we set ourselves up to potentially have the best trip possible? Things like that. So I think in that way, cannabis can be a gateway drug simply because we have a lot of information out there now. Damn, that's interesting. Yeah, usually it's about the altered state, right? That that usually yeah. and so to that I would argue that actually just standing outside with your arms out as a child spinning around until you're dizzy and you fall down, that's a gate <laughs> drug to your altered state. Right? <laughs> yes, absolutely right. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious about um the next step with psychedelics. It seems to be that where we are now is just this really interesting place where uh, some some places are starting to legalize. I, I want to say in parts of uh, British Columbia and Canada, they've started to legalize mushrooms um, and mm-hmm. psychedelic uh, psilocybin uses is recreationally OK. First question is, what are your thoughts on that, on the legalization of psilocybin specifically for just anybody just like in a cannabis dispensary can walk in, pay for it and walk out and just now be doing that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I um, I think that we need to decriminalize all drugs. Oh. And I, I know that sounds crazy when, when, when I would say that, but I talked to an anthropologist. Um, she's actually in Canada, speaking of Canada, eh? Um, anyway, she uh, she talked about the uh, what's called the Iron Law of Prohibition. And you can look this up. And there's all this information out there about when we prohibit substances or when we make them illegal, all we're really doing is creating harm. And obviously, we create harm by because because people get, you know, incarcerated for, you know, drug use or drug trafficking and things like that. But but even beyond that, if we think about just going back to the days of alcohol prohibition, right? What happened? Moonshine got created, right? That's way worse than your average like glass of beer or whatever, right? The the really um high ABV alcohol of of a moonshine would be would be bad. And uh I mean it's not totally bad, but you know, people are drinking a lot of it, right? And then we think about if we think about opioids, we um you know heroin's illegal as a recreational drug of course and but what what happened when we made that illegal i mean it's been illegal for a long time but what did we get we got fentanyl people are dying from fentanyl i mean obviously there are people that do die just from heroin too but you're much more prevalent is the overdose deaths from fentanyl so you can look at just about any substance even we can even look at cannabis and so when we think about delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol whatever THC stands for it's such a mouthful. We think about um, you know the delta nine THC, and then if we think about delta eight THC, there statistically more um, people end up in the ER, including children. They're they're ending up in the ER for delta eight uh, more often. So in in states that have um, they haven't legalized marijuana or t- regular THC, obviously there's basically synthetic THC, and that is causing more harm than regular THC. So when we prohibit substances, it's a problem. Because Delta-8, for anyone who isn't aware, it has to be extracted from the hemp plant and the THC is so low in the hemp plant rather than the marijuana plant um, that by the time it's extracted to get your Delta-8, Delta it's practically synthetic, you know, and so it's it's causing a lot of problems. So if we stop prohibiting these substances and 
increase the information on safety and logistics about them because people are going to use substances whether they're illegal or legal or whatever if we stop prohibiting it and you know arresting people and all this stuff people stop doing it in secret there's more information out there about safety and logistics it makes it safer for everyone so i'm a huge advocate for decriminalization and even legalization like you know that's a step further even legalization again for all drugs you know, so is Portugal, uh, 2001. You've heard about this, yeah? Uh, they decriminalized yeah. everything. Okay, and it was a fascinating study that they did on their on their folks, and it actually turned out amazing. They did so well. Uh, addictions just plummeted. There's a, a list of statistics you, you guys can look up of what happened when Portugal in 2001 decriminalized the personal use and possession of all illicit drugs. They just said, make it all okay. Either all of it's okay or none of it's okay, and it had a phenomenal result. And at the same time, there was a study done uh, not too long before then or around that time with a guy who introduced uh, what they were talking about was all oh, just people are going to just do drugs. They're just going to do and that's it. Society's going to crumble. Well, that's not accurate. What they, the study they were basing this on were rats in a lab in one cage with a water bottle that had morphine in it. And they would just drink the shit out of that and OD and die. And they would say, oh, well, this is how humans will behave. But a researcher took that further and said that wasn't a fair condition of study. And he created Rat Park. Have you ever heard of this? No. So what he did Tell was more. they took they took the uh, and I I don't have the names or anything, but I know enough of it to get us through and to allow people to research further, which is where we are with this. Y'all look this up. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. The conditions he thought weren't fair. So what he did was he created a massive environment for these rats and didn't have one rat. He had a family of rats, like several. They could breed. There were um, balls. There were activities. There were little games. There were snacks. There was all kinds of things that they could do to keep stimulated. Then they had two water bottles, one with water and one with morphine. Same was done in the first study, by the way. Uh, but the rat, of course, chose the morphine and OD because it was just sick of living in that environment. So what happened was some rats would go to the morphine bottle, taste it and be like, uh, no, 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 I don't want this. It makes me not be able to go play or breed or be doing what I actually want to do, which is living life, not escaping it. So they would no no rats OD'd at all in that environment because it wasn't set up to fail because there wasn't a conditions in which they needed to be stimulated in another way. They had all of their needs provided. But it's also interesting when things things are introduced along with the psychology that systems in place here benefit from you feeling very limited and very powerless. And, oh, well, here's a thing that will help you with that. And so it's just very interesting when you look at the studies of what uh, Portugal did. And then again, what this man said, no, the study about this that created a lot of the narrative for the war on drugs was inaccurately performed. We're going to make you a real study so that you have the actual data basing, backing this up for all informed parties that are looking for that. So it's just an interesting thing when you talk about this decriminalization element, because I'm right there with you. If you want to talk freedom, uh, that's you and I uh, very much align on that. Uh, wh what are your thoughts then for the next step after decriminalization of all of it? Do you think that people are just going to be running around on mushrooms all over the place and just stabbing people in the face? That's what uh, <laughs> most legislators would like you to believe. The same ones that don't want to see the mask that you're able to see when you're on mushrooms that they're wearing, right? Right. No, you know what? I think the world is going to be a better place if we decriminalize and, you know, specifically in terms of psychedelics and psilocybin, um, what somebody told me, and I felt like this was a really profound thing to say, was that, so if you think about antidepressants, so like SSRIs, uh, ser uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, lots of people are on those. And, you know, I certainly don't want anyone to stop their medications if they're on that and that's working for them. But 
uh, SSRIs blunt our moods, right? They stop us from having high, you know, great highs and enjoyment, and they stop us from having like our deepest lows, right? Now, if you think about what this person said to me was that SSRIs um, blunt everything so that you don't have the highs and lows, but psilocybin makes you more okay with those highs and lows. Yeah. And so what if what if we were all a little bit more okay when we experience sadness? What if we were all a little bit more okay? I mean, we, we love experiencing joy, but what if we really leaned into that and we then we thought about our joy when we're really sad and that helped us just enjoy life a little bit better. I truly believe that psychedelics do help you to enjoy life a little bit better. And it's not that we're trying to escape from life. I mean, yes, you're kind of escaping from life when you do a journey, but afterwards that there's some last, lasting effects there in terms of the, uh, you know, neurogenesis that's going on in the brain. And, um, you know, I think we have lasting ways of changing our behavior and leaning into, again, those deeper, deeper feelings. Outstanding. God, you're eloquent. <laughs> this is just, I, I know your book's wonderful. Um, and just the work that you're doing is just remarkable. I mean, truly remarkable. Just the the look that you have, and again, the reference that you have to tie it to its indigenous origins from the ground up. And it, again, it just doesn't seem like a stone's been unturned by you in this avenue. And we look forward to to all the things that you're doing in the future. So, uh, thank you. I, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to have the last word here. And to that, I'd just like to also invite you back anytime you want to want to come on and also to let the audience know that all the ways to find her located down in the show notes, make sure you'll check that out. The Psilocybin Handbook for Women. Boys are allowed. You guys check it out too. I'm going to read my wife's copy. It's okay. But uh, just thank you so much. And I just wanted to, again, give you the last word on here to sign off with what gets you out of bed every morning? What gives you hope? What keeps you moving forward? Well, I think right before going into my psilocybin journey, my guide had sent me this really cool meditation. It was like a, an audio meditation that he had sent. And there was, he said something so profound and it's really stuck with me. And so I'd love to end with that. It's, it's, um, he said, the, the, the love that you withhold is the pain that you carry. I'll say it one more time. The love that you withhold is the pain that you're, that you carry. And that is so true when we're fearing, loving the world around us or the people that are closest to us, it's because we're still grappling with some sense of pain that's preventing us from really exploring that love fully. And it doesn't have to be romantic love. It can just be loving your neighbor, you know, or loving people who are different than you. And so I think if we if we try to heal the pains that we have, however that may be, whether that's a journey or, um, you know, just whatever sources that you have for healing yourself, that helps you lean into the world a little bit more and feel more at one with everyone, maybe a little bit less alone. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.